everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and we are back after a little hiatus to talk to you about, uh, you probably guessed it, elections, my favorite topic. The midterm elections, they're on November 8th, and uh, early voting starts on October 24th. And here in Austin, it's a pretty big election year. Of course, across Texas, we've got several big statewide races coming up, um, including a very well-publicized governor's race between incumbent Greg Abbott and Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke. And that is, of course, important. But if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that I like to shine a light on the way less publicized local elections. And this year, we have five city council seats on the ballot and a pretty competitive mayor's race here in Austin that we'll all be voting for as well. And the people who are elected to these local seats, they've got some pretty big decisions to make and challenges ahead that will really determine the future of our city. You know, the next city council will have to deal with Austin's housing affordability crisis, our ongoing struggles with homelessness, the decline of our live music scene, and the implementation and build out of Project Connect, which is pretty much our city's biggest ever investment in public transportation. So it's a pretty big deal, (laughs) but there are a lot of candidates running, which makes the entire election kind of difficult to follow, which is why we're doing these episodes. Over the next several weeks, I'll be breaking it all down for you so you can confidently cast an informed vote by election day. And this week, we're going to kick things off with an episode dedicated to the Austin City Council District 5 election. District 5 is located in South Austin. And if you're not sure which council district you live in, you can look that up at austintexas.gov backslash government. And we'll post that in the show notes as well. Anyway, District 5 is a pretty interesting city council race because Ann Kitchen, who has served as council member of that district for the past eight years, she's leaving after serving her two terms in office, which means there's no incumbent running. So the race is pretty much wide open and lots of people are running to replace her. Oh, and one important thing uh, to remember when it comes to city council races, council candidates in Austin, they don't run with any official political party affiliation. Now, you can, of course, pretty easily tell which party they align with, but it means that there's no primary election. And so instead of just seeing one Republican and one Democrat on the ballot, you're going to see a whole bunch of different names. In District 5, actually six candidates are running, and you're about to hear interviews that I recorded with them in a second. But before we get to the interviews, I just wanted to share a few of my tips and uh, things to listen for, because I know that with so many candidates running, it can feel a bit overwhelming to sift through them all and decide which candidate you're going to vote for. So here are my tips for like, as you're listening to these interviews, things to keep an eye out for and listen for. Okay, tip number one, listen for the issues and priorities that candidates bring up on their own, sometimes without me even asking. This can help you really figure out what's most important to the candidates. Because being a council member, it's really about priority setting. Tip number two, um, it's also really easy for a candidate to say that they're upset because Austin is so unaffordable, but do they actually have a plan to do something about it? Uh, Listen for the specifics and for which candidates seem to have clearly taken the time to think about an issue. And tip number three, Think about what you value, and then see if a candidate's experiences and qualifications match those values. So for example, maybe you're looking for someone who has deep roots in the community and volunteers a lot. Or maybe you want someone with experience in government who knows how things work and can just hit the ground running on day one. 
Or maybe you prefer more of an outsider candidate who can bring a fresh skill set to City Hall. Basically, the idea with all of these tips is to think about your values and priorities, and then find a candidate who best matches them. Okay, let's get to those interviews already. Oh, and for each of these interviews, I asked the candidates to participate in a little show and tell activity. Uh, basically, I just asked them to bring one item of sentimental value or that showed something about themselves as like real human people and to share that item with all of us. So you're going to hear that in the interviews. And if you want to see actual photos of what they brought, you can check that out on our Instagram page, which is at the underscore Austin underscore common. Okay, <laughs> for real this time, on to the interviews. First up is Ryan Alter. And uh, Ryan decided to start right off the bat with his show and tell, which is his two young children. So you're going to hear their voices right away. Let's give that interview a listen. All right. Well, hello. Hello. This is Atticus. Hi. (laughs) This is Aurora, my daughter. She's almost three. Atticus is one. And Pretty good are, show and tell you got there. <laughs> that's right. They are my show and tell. So, oh, and now he's definitely done with it. So yeah, I'm it. impressed they lasted this long. <laughs> and out. All right, here, let me go drop them. One second. Yeah, go for it. All right. She really wanted to do the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard a why. <laughs> right. Anyways, well, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Um, let's go ahead and, and get right into it. Thank you let's for being it. flexible on the time. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So we started with show and tell, and I, I have a feeling that it's going to lead into my first question, which is who are you and, and why are you running? Absolutely. Yes. So I, I am Ryan Alter. I'm running for Austin City Council District 5. Uh, really just running because I feel like Austin is on an unsustainable path right now. And, and like I, you know, for my show and tell, I have two young kids and I was born and raised here and, you know, we're raising our kids here, but I want to make sure that Austin is a place where they can grow up with other people's families can, can have a a family and an Austin experience. Uh, But we just see more and more that people are being pushed out and it's not a city uh, that is open and welcoming for everybody. And so I have spent my career in public service. I, after law school, went to work for Senator Watson at the legislature and worked with him for a long time until he retired. And now I'm the general counsel for Senator Hinojosa. And, you know, we fight for progressive values every day, voting rights, reproductive rights, uh, our environment, quality schools. There is just a lot we can do. And so that's why I'm running. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you have that that state experience because Austin City Council, you know, historically butts heads with the state a lot. And it can sometimes be a real hindrance to some of the policies the city's trying to work through. Do you Mm -hmm. feel like your state experience can can bring some value to city council? Absolutely. So I think the biggest value it brings that as a Democratic office, you can't pass anything in the legislature without building consensus, without getting Republican support. And so I have spent my career learning how to take policies and really work both the consensus building, the the stakeholder process, but then also you have to really master the process. Uh, People often 
you know, have a great idea, but if you don't understand the process that is involved to get something enacted and ultimately uh, put into place by the administrative side of things, then it's just an idea. And so I think it absolutely is, is key and, and very helpful for what I want to do. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive a little into the issues here. You talked about Austin, Austin of the future and Austin being a place where not all families are able to, to grow up. Um, I assume obviously that that's boiling down to housing. What do you feel like we can be doing and our city council can be doing differently that we hasn't achieved yet that Uh, would make housing more affordable in our city? So many things. Uh, It's there, the kind of the global theme, if you look at our housing policies, is that all our policies and all our processes only incentivize building large, expensive single family homes. We make it incredibly limited where you can build anything that's not a single family home. And in the rare instance where you can, we make the process so expensive and so onerous that people just decide, well, I can make the same return by building that $3 million mansion. That's what I'm gonna do. And so what I wanna see us do and what I am prepared to do is create a housing plan where you have opportunity for everyone everywhere. You know, you're gonna hear a lot of people talk about affordable housing and the need for affordability, but separate from my legislative work, my sister and I started a small family business that actually built housing here in Austin that was attainable, that was underneath, or that was less than the median family income. So I've done it. I have actually delivered uh, for Austinites. and, And so we need to, make it so that it's not just in the edges. You're gonna hear everyone say along the corridors and that's great, but there are only so many corridors. We need housing everywhere. And and that's what I think is unique to me and my campaign. Yeah, and and on council, do you feel like this is the kind of thing that you would prioritize and push? I mean, a big, a big issue I think with our land development code and housing policy is this something that you, as you mentioned, council members talk about, but like not a ton of progress pushes through council. Yeah. You know, what, what would your approach be to trying to, to move the needle? So it would be, it, it's my top priority. It, okay. I would be laser focused on it and dedicate myself to it every day. But what I kind of see is a, a two-step approach. I have concrete plans of things that we can do immediately that as a city and through our administrative side and some of our policies, we can enact and get going within a month or two and really start changing how development gets done. And and like I said, um, make that incentive so that people want to build something that's not just that expensive single family home and instead build more multi-unit that is more affordable for more people. Uh, And then I do have some big plans as well that are going to take a little more time, but that we have to start on day one, working with stakeholders, talking to various, you know, neighborhoods and other um, groups within Austin and just start building that consensus and, and get everybody behind our vision, which is to make Austin a place where everyone can live. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about homelessness as well. Another key issue in, in Austin how, how do you feel like city council has handled this issue so far? And, and what would you like to see done differently or done more of or the same into yeah. the future? 
Yeah, so I think the biggest frustration with how the city has handled homelessness is just the response hasn't been robust enough. It hasn't met the need that we have. You know, you look at our initiatives and we are only serving a few hundred people a year uh, in terms of getting them to housing, but we have thousands of people uh, who are in need. And and sadly, you had uh, the HEAL initiative, which came from District 5 mm-hmm. uh, council member and was held up as a bright, you know, the bright shining example of what we should be doing. And just this week, we find out that half the people are exiting that program uh, no better than they started. And so what I want to do is really have a robust response that that meets the level of need and employs things that we see are working. So Esperanza community is a place where you have individuals are able to go and receive a lot of the services that they need that help stabilize their lives. And that's exactly what I want to see. I, I call them stabilization hubs, but find some sites around town where individuals can go and have a safe place to live, get physical, mental health, including substance use treatment, uh, transportation, sanitation, caseworking, all the things that serve as that stabilization force, and then is the bridge to the housing that we are building, but that's going to take some years. And lastly, just real fast, I think it's really important to not lose in this conversation the prevention side of things. It is Mm -hmm. the cheapest, most effective way to address this crisis, and we need to do more in terms of either targeted rental assistance or We've even seen some good uh, results from a pilot program that provided attorney representation to those facing eviction. Smart things like that can help prevent someone becoming unhoused altogether. Yeah. Um, I want to touch briefly on another thing I saw on your website that I thought was unique, which was talking about um, basic government systems and trying to make city council more approachable, accessible. Obviously, that's interesting to me. I'm curious, what do you mean by that? What would you like to see in the way city council is run. Yeah, you know, I joke with people that I never thought before this campaign I would ever brag about state government, but man, it's doing a better job than our city government. And and that's just, that's kind of sad to be honest. When it comes to what? When it comes to um, interacting. So like, let's say you, you want, you, let's say you have a problem and you need to figure out who to talk to. It is next to impossible to figure out on the city website who do I talk to to fix this problem? And then trying to actually talk to that person or get a meeting. I heard from someone the other day that they requested a meeting with somebody who was about a, a development issue. And the person responded and said, I'm sorry, I think meetings are a thing of the past. We, we cannot have a government that works for the people if it's not willing to actually work for the people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so you also see that in terms of just cross-departmental communication. I dealt with a department the other day, I had an issue. And they said, I'm sorry, that's actually uh, something that we can't fix, you need to go talk to this other department. And I went and talked to them. And they said, well, actually, that that's not us, you need to go back and talk to the first part. And instead of being able to say, hey, let's talk to each other and figure out how to solve this problem, you don't have that. And so if council wants to actually solve these problems, we can't, we can pass policies all day long, but if the actual government that is enacting those policies isn't functioning, then those, those enactments, those policies are, are no better than the paper they're written on. So as someone who has worked in government for a long time, I know the importance of having that administrative side of things actually function and and deliver for people. 
And, and that's what I want to see us do. Yeah. Um, okay. So we talked on a few of your priorities there. Um, just before we end, any last, you want to maybe mention one more priority that would be key for you if you were elected? Yeah. The environment. It's, I think, you know, we have got to treat climate change like the crisis that it is. You know, my generation is going to feel the brunt of this more so than, you know, others who are currently on council. Um, and so our generation, you know, needs to have this voice at the table when we are making decisions, but especially when it comes to the climate and, and not just setting all these goals that we then fail to meet. We have set so many goals mm -hmm. that a year or two later, we say we're, we're not on track. And, and that is just not cutting it. We have got to set goals and targets that are non-negotiable and make every decision uh, with the thought of how is this going to affect the climate and are we doing enough to really get to where we need to go? And sadly, it's the city can't, the city of Austin can't solve it by itself, but we are a part of the larger picture and we've got to do more. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for reaching out and having me. And that was Ryan Alter. Next up, we're going to hear from Bill Welsh. Okay, I'm here with Bill. Uh, let's just give us the intro here. Who are you? Why are you running? Yeah, I'm Bill Welch. I'm a retired Air Force General Officer, I'm a retired uh, businessman, former CEO of some large companies here in town. And I'm an entrepreneur that uh, I've founded eight businesses over my lifetime, but um, the most recent being Aptronic Incorporated, which we started in 2016, spun a really cool robotics technology out of the University of Texas. And uh, now it's a world-changing enterprise with uh, oh, over 60 employees we're hiring every day and uh, 60,000 square feet, a $60 million valuation. I love all those numbers. Um, and uh, I'm running because, uh, well, I'm retired now. I've retired from all those things. Uh, I'm very, very disappointed and uh, concerned about the uh, current city council and some of the policies they've uh, initiated that I think are very harmful uh, to our community, uh, to our public safety, to our traffic safety. And uh, I, I wanna get involved. And I, I think the only way, if you're unhappy with the way things are, the only way to make a change is to get in the game. And so I said, I'm gonna jump into this race and give it my best. Uh, and answer questions, be square, tell you exactly where I'm coming from, give the voters a chance to make a decision on their own. But I'm very different and I'm running because I want to restore reason to the city council process. So, Yeah, and, and let's talk about some of those specifics. You know, when you talk about restoring reason, um, what are some of the issues in particular that have given you the most cause for concern um, with the current city council? Maybe you stop, start with your top one. Oh, the top one is the, the defunding the police. I thought that was a huge mistake. We've got crime now that's going through the roof. And equal, equally as bad, I would say, is the, uh, the, the lifting of the camping ban when they did that. Now, we as voters have overturned that. There's still a lack of enforcement. I think we have to get back to enforcing the camping ban and uh, um, ridding our streets of the, the, the problems that are associated with uh, with the uh, uh, the folks that are out there <clears throat> and then um, 
you know, other issues that, that continue to perplex me, uh, you know, over years, uh, we've neglected our roadways. Uh, uh, traffic management uh, is is insane now. They've created all sorts of obstacles with the uh, uh, bike lanes and calming devices and all this. I, listen, you want to control traffic and traffic speed, you need traffic enforcement, which requires additional police forces, which, you know, requires police to be out on the streets and enforce the traffic laws and 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 all these other items are, are really making driving more dangerous and not uh not easier so yeah let, let's talk about some of these so policing you mm-hmm. know this is one that um back in the summer of 2020 our city council did vote to make some um major changes to our police department and its budget the legislature then passed um some laws that basically overturned that effort and so now going forward, I guess I'm wondering what do you see? Um, what would you like to see the next city council do on that issue? Because you know some of those things have already been rolled back. But you, what would you like to see done well, differently I, I, in the future? Clearly, we haven't done enough. I mean, uh, it, there's a prioritization of funding by the city council needs to focus first and foremost. Municipal governance needs to focus first and foremost on public safety. That's police, fire, and EMS. Now, each of those departments needs to be properly and fully funded so that they can recruit, retain, and train, and equip the very best personnel possible. And they're they're not there. I can tell you the police department is woefully underfunded and woefully uh, undermanned. And and we've made it because of the constant criticism and and, uh, onerous oversight that they keep throwing at police officers because of misbehavior by a few, not the, not the whole department. Um, we've got these uh, problems with recruiting and uh, bringing on quality police officers for the future. We need to turn that around. We need to be supportive of our police department. We need to make sure they're properly trained and, and to meet the expectations of our community. And uh, But the same goes for fire. And EMS, oh my gosh, I mean, I think they're so terribly underpaid. Um, you can make as much money as our EMS drivers by working in restaurants or washing dishes. It's, it's just terrible. These are real professionals that deserve a better pay and uh, uh, the respect of the community for the work that they do. So, Do you think there's a way to, um, I guess, increase funding to our police department or increase staffing at our police department to what it is now while still, you know, there was this community outcry over um, misbehavior by some police officers. And I think some some have argued, well, those officers aren't held accountable. Even the bad apples, quote unquote, are not held accountable. Do you feel like we have enough accountability in our police department? Is there a way to have accountability and uh strong recruitment of police officers. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? I, think, I, I absolutely think there is. And, but I just think that we, we've gone too far. And the criticisms are unfair and unfounded and um, to, to roll out in mass uh, because of things that happened even in another state and have these mass demonstrations and such was overboard. And the reaction to that was a defunding of the police. And I think you, you just go too far when you when you overreach like that. Um, that we need to come back to proper respect, proper funding, proper training. Let me give you an example. I, I did a ride along with the police the other night, just just a few nights ago. I, I was so impressed. These are quality 
hardworking, dedicated individuals who are who are well trained. We have great police officers today. Certainly, within every organization, there's a few bad apples. Don't let's not allow us to paint the entire department with a single brush because of the misbehavior of those people. Now, there's a question as to whether or not there's proper accountability. Um, I, I would dispute that to the extent that I would say sometimes it's a matter of perception. In other words, we perceive that they're just not doing anything about it. While internally, these officers feel the pain um, of, of the actions that they might take that are overreaching. Um, and, and I think that there's, there needs to be transparency. Um, we need to understand what goes on, but not to the extent that it's become so onerous that nobody wants that job. Nobody wants to come work for us because, good Lord, if I go work there, I, next thing you know, I'm going off to jail for actions during an, these crazy crisis moments where in a matter of seconds, things change and become very violent. Uh, an officer has to react. And now we begin to question that uh, days later, months later, and, and uh, you know, create, create an uncertainty on their part. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. we, we just have to be careful. No overreach. Um, I want to talk about the other one, homelessness, the other big issue you flagged there. Again, this is one that city council um, did vote to remove our camping ban. Voters restored it. There are still questions about enforcement of that. But but going forward, what do you feel like city council could be doing differently? We talked a little bit about enforcement, but what do we still do about the problem at large? Do you support some of the council's other programs they've initiated, like the HEAL initiative or some of these permanent supporting housing developments? Like, what do you feel like we can do about homelessness differently? Well, yeah. And I, and I think here, I think that we, when we say homelessness, I, I think, you know, it's, it gets confusing because there are some people who, because of terrible situations that have occurred, whether health problems or loss of a job or whatever, become homeless, but they want to be in a home. They want to be in a structured facility of some type, and we should have facilities for that. But there are others whose lifestyle, what we're seeing on the streets today with the camping all over town, are people who, who probably are more likely suffering from drug or alcohol or mental illness problems and uh, illnesses, and we should be dealing with those effectively. And so enforcement should be immediate. There should be immediate response to complaints by citizens that there's a camping situation that's been set up in my backyard, uh, down the street from my house, on a, on a highway, frontage road, whatever it might be. There ought to be immediate response. That immediate response ought to be by professionals who are trained in dealing with human issues. The uh, human resources department, I mean, they're not human resources, the uh, um, the officers that, that we do have like this uh, not, outreach not, street, homelessness outreach street teams or. Yeah, but I'm not talking about police officers. I'm talking about uh, human services, people from the okay. uh, EMS uh, nonprofits. Exactly. And, and okay. that's a very good point. And it ought to include not just city employees, but we should have uh, private enterprise. We should have faith based organizations, anybody that's willing to reach out and be part of a team that will really provide the care necessary for these people that are suffering from very serious illnesses that cause them to not want to be in a structured facility because there are rules there that prevent them from having the, the, the lifestyle that they're living. And that is the ones that they're lost in drug addiction and 
alcoholism or again mental illness and we should be able to help them but we've got to get them off the street and we can't support that lifestyle it's it's inhumane to the people that are on the street and it's unfair to our communities that they should have to endure the constant panhandling the petty theft other crimes that are associated with such um, lifestyles and so um, yeah i'd like to see a very strict enforcement but not by police. It, the, if the police are there, it's an officer who's standing by in the event of violence. It ought mm-hmm. to be by professionals who deal with individuals one-on-one. What is their yeah. issue? And let's find them the appropriate care and, and, mm-hmm. and get them off the street. So. Yeah. And then, you know, before we close, we're doing a little bit of a show and tell to get to know our candidates a little bit better, know who you are as a person. I think you have an item for us. Okay, let me see. I'm going to show you, I guess, uh, I've got all so many items in here because 38 <laughs> years of military service. I think this is one of the coolest ones. I'll bring you my my uh, rocket ship. This is, uh, this is the space shuttle. And years ago, I was the commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service, and I had a recruiting squadron down in Florida. And they invited me down to speak at their event. And, well, that's what we have. They, they give me these all, I have all sorts of these cool little... Uh, mementos. I've got another is a, a baseball bat and uh, you know a variety of things. So I kind of like to have my mementos around so I can uh, kind of think back on some of the memories I had of the uh, great years of service that I, I had with the Air Force, 38 years in fact. Yeah. And so then just to close it out real quick, um, what do you feel like you can bring uniquely to the table here in running for this city council race and serving on city council? What makes you kind of different from some of the other candidates? No, I have a breadth and depth of experience um, that is relevant to the work that the city council does. That is unlike anything else that any other candidate brings to the table. Um, You know, I've got those 38 years of senior military service uh, retiring as a general officer, having been in charge of uh, billion-dollar budgets and uh, oversight of uh, operations in Korea and other places where there's billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people involved, being able to deal with the critical issues that pop up every day. That's one. And then my, my experience in business and my experience as an entrepreneur and having to deal with all the issues that our, that our startup community and entrepreneurs in this community face I, I have those experiences. I can bring those to the council and make sure that the policies that we're implementing are policies that will support the vibrant community that we want, the vibrant business community, the vibrant living community, uh, the safe community that we all want, deserve, and uh, hope for in the future. So, well, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. And that was Bill Welsh. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Ken Craig. I am here with Ken, and let's just kick it off from the beginning. Who are you? Why are you running? Okay, thank you. My name is Ken Craig, and I have uh, served Austin and South Austin uh, for the last seven and a half years. Um, as a senior policy advisor in the District 5 office of Councilmember Ann Kitchen, and I've also spent decades of community involvement and leadership. And I want to bring my experience, 
my knowledge and my values to the realization of a vision of our city in which everyone thrives, regardless of identity or neighborhood. Um, all of our residents should be supported in fully participating and contributing to the cultural richness and economic prosperity of our city, which means that our resources, our funding, and our support need to go toward public health, public safety, social services, housing, um, good wages, green space, arts and creative spaces, all the things that people need to live safely and well in our community. Yeah, and so you mentioned there that you've been working with Councilmember Kitchen's office um, for a lot of the time she's been in office. You have a lot of experience of what's going on at City Hall. And, you know, one of the big issues that City Council has helped had to deal with in the past few years is homelessness. And, you know, the public this has thrown out a lot of criticism, I think, in some ways of what City Council has has done. Um, but some new programs also developed over that that process, particularly the HEAL initiative. And the idea behind that, right, is figuring out a way to close encampments, but at the same time, connect those folks to housing opportunities. And that was something that uh, Councilmember Kitchen really spearheaded. You talk a little bit more about that program, if you feel like it's successful, what you would like to see it do in the future. Sure. Um, thank you for bringing up the HEAL initiative. It was a, an absolute uh, wonderful experience to work with Councilmember Kitchen to uh, develop the HEAL initiative. Um, it started with the, the notion that we were there were people that we were having living in very dangerous places, some of whom occasionally were getting severely injured and I think in a couple of cases um, had died because of the dangerous place where they were living. And what can we do to make to improve those those folks' lives and not just be moving people around. So two aspects of the HEAL initiative that were really important to me. One is that it had to be housing focused, that the folks that were going to be part of the initiative were going to go into a housing focused shelter where they were going to receive the services that were necessary for them to be successful in permanent housing on, on a housing track. Right? And secondly, that we would be able to offer this to people as a community. Um, the 30, 40, 50 people who are living in the encampment, or in some cases, 10 or whatever the number was, so that they could take advantage of the, the opportunities of HEAL as a community. Um, years and years of experience let, lets us know that you can't just pick someone up individually, give them the keys to a, an apartment, and say, good luck, and have a good life, and expect that person to be successful. It, the, we can't remove people from the community that they've known. Um, one of the things that's that a lot of people don't get is that rehousing folks um, involves a certain level of trauma as well. Not the same as becoming homeless, but it is a shift for people in a way that takes them out of something that, they're, that they are used to. Um, the community that they're used to, the people that they've lived with and that they've protected and protected them, their friends, their family. So if we can offer this opportunity to get housing and then when they move into that permanent housing, we can perhaps offer if three or four folks want to live nearby or in the same complex, we should be able to offer that as well. Um, the program has um, 
it's been uh, in a pilot phase for close to two years now, I think. Um, over 90% of the people who were offered the option to enter the HEAL initiative took it. Um, at, there have been some, of course, some growing pains during the pilot phase, but the, uh, the number of people who are exiting into housing or the percentage of people who are exiting into housing continues to increase and the amount of time that they're having to spend in bridge shelter before getting to the housing continues to decrease. So I think that it's absolutely, uh, the, the, the program has been proven and I would like to see it expanded and really embrace a lot more people. Yeah. You know, I, I, a recent report just came out that about half of the people that are participating in HEAL, any of them back on the streets, but half are also getting housing, you know, so do you feel like that is, um, you know, some people are like, we need to ditch the program. Do you feel like it's more a matter of, like you said, we're still piloting and learning? Do you feel like what lessons can we learn to improve it from here? Well, I just want to say, I believe that the numbers actually show that it's about a quarter of the people who are actually leaving the program who are not going into some type of shelter mm -hmm. or housing. They're just leaving the program to possibly resume, uh, to, to go back to being homeless. The other quarter are going into alternative programs and not, they're just not finishing the HEAL program. That's the way, uh, that's what I understand it is. But I also know that that number is, uh, the number of people who are going through and getting housing is increasing. So um, I'm not suggesting that it was a, it's a perfect rollout by any stretch, but we have, the concept has been proven. Um, there are some management issues that have been being worked out. Um, and Resource issues, of course, always are the case, but I believe that it has shown to be good. And frankly, we can't wait for perfection in order mm -hmm. to care for our sisters and brothers. We have to put our arms around our sisters and brothers and bring them to us and let them know that they are loved, that they are cared for, that they're important parts of our community. They're important to us because they are our sisters and brothers. And if we are going to wait for a program that is 100% effective all the time, we will not be able to embrace our sisters and brothers the way we need to. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna talk a little bit about housing more broadly. Housing mm -hmm. affordability, obviously a huge issue in Austin. And this has been another issue where the city council I think has disagreed on certain approaches to how we figure out to build more housing in Austin or increase housing affordability in Austin, what would your approach be if you were elected to housing affordability? Is it increasing development? Is it subsidized housing? You know, is it, what's kind of your general tact there? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a wise guy, but um, and I don't mean to suggest that we just do a broad brush. I believe that um, for housing affordability to be achieved, our efforts need to be intentional and they need to be directed. Um, there are a couple of things that I'm very um, that are very important to me. One is we need to preserve our existing affordable housing, particularly the existing multifamily units that are scattered throughout our neighborhoods right now. Uh, they are in danger of regularly of being purchased and either demolished and rebuilt 
or remodeled to the extent that they're not going to be affordable anymore. And there are those, you know, I'm talking about the four, eight, 10, 12, 16 plexes that are in District 5. You find through Zilker, South Lamar, some of them in Barton, uh, Barton Hills, uh, Southwood, um, that may be 20, 30 years old, um, may need a little repair, but they're currently affordable. Um, I, I think we need to preserve those. I was just speaking to um, a, a woman the other day, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, at, I'll get to this in a second, who owns some of these uh, and said that she is really, her, her main concern is not only maintaining ownership of those units, but making sure that they stay affordable. That brings me to the time that the opportunity that I had to speak with her, which was at the grand opening of the Pathways at Goodrich, which was a um, comb- uh, um, uh, an effort that was a combined effort, pardon me, um, from the city, the Zilker Neighborhood Association, the Housing Authority, to actually bring 80 more affordable units in the Zilker neighborhood through work together. You know, it was a, it was a group effort uh, that I was able to work, uh, like I said, with the neighbors, with the housing authority, with the city staff to remodel and to increase the number of units that were there affordable in a central city neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right there, um, which was a tremendous um, opportunity to, to uh, have that um, interaction with all the groups and lets me know that people are willing to have those kinds of um, developments in their neighborhoods as long as they're done well, as long as they are geared toward affordability. And all of those units, Mike, I just want to make sure, make it clear, those 80 units and the 40 original that were there have all been remodeled, all been um, uh, upgraded, energy efficient, and all are affordable at different levels. So right. I think there's that's a wonderful program. Um, I also think that um, like we have an opportunity with Project Connect to direct affordable housing and housing generally both along the transit corridors. And when I talk about being directed and intentional, I also want to make sure that we are engaging um, people who will bring retail to to that development along the uh, transit corridors uh, so that we can have grocers and other services cultural and uh, educational opportunities and green space there. So people, places where people will want to live and also become an amenity for uh, surrounding neighborhoods that are not going to be car dependent you know, uh-huh. so that we, people and, can and be, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like when you're talking about these approach, this approach here with affordable housing and development, you know, would you say your approach would be similar to council member kitchens where you're talking about targeting where you're putting this affordable housing? You know, some folks are like, we need to build housing everywhere uh, all the time. Is your approach that, or is it a little bit more similar to what council member kitchen has been doing, which is more thinking about quarters and uh, targeted areas and locations? Well, I would say it's similar in the sense that I think we have to take advantage of project connect. Okay. Um, and I and I, I think, frankly, probably everybody who looks at it says that we need to take advantage of Project Connect because that's where we're going to be able to let people live um, in the kind of density that 
well, creates transit density and makes uh, car travel optional, which also reduces uh, costs as well. Um, I don't believe that we can just open the floodgates and have people build as much as they want wherever they want because, I mean, there is a certain cohesiveness that we want to have in the city, right? Um, but I also know that we do have opportunities for multifamily in neighborhoods. Um, one of the mm -hmm. things I would like to, to pursue is, um, for, for instance, there are people who live like on a half acre who would love to put in a fourplex, but they can't capitalize that. We should make capital available uh, through programs for people who want to do that. I'm talking about people who actually have the resources to maintain the payments and everything after that's done. Um, and I believe also that we just need to look for all the opportunities that are available to us. There are a lot of what you might call orphan lots around mm -hmm. the city, you know, too small, too oddly shaped or what, what have you that we are not utilizing. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that we should be able to utilize those. Um, uh, a lot of it has to do with planning. You know, we have to plan mm -hmm. for it to be affordable, I think. Otherwise, it's just yeah. you're just increasing the stock. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we could talk about this stuff all day, but uh, I, I want to wrap us up here with a, oh, I'm sorry. In the last minute. No, no, no. I, I, I love it. It's great. Um, it's so hard to keep these interviews to <laughs> a short period of time, but um, let's, let's close with a little bit about you again, our show and tell items. Um, oh. What do you got for me? A little something that uh, shows who you are. You can just describe it for us. Okay. Well, actually, okay. I'll, I'll, I have the one thing that you can't see, but it's a replica of a lunchbox that I had when I was a kid and it is the, the lunchbox itself is a barn and you open it up and the little thermos is the silo that sits next to the barn. And I had this thing for probably three or four years uh, before the Southeast Texas weather got to it and turned it into a little bit of a rusty thing. And I kept, <laughs> and even after that, I kept it because it reminded me of times when my mom and I would make my little sandwiches together in the morning before I would go to school. And we would have conversations about what happened what's going to happen today and and all of those things and i don't even remember frankly any of them in particular but i just remember the time spent putting at the time there was no baggies right so you, you folded up the wax paper right. around the sandwich <laughs> and put it in and stuff and i had my little juice or my milk or whatever in the silo um and at night when i came home from school i had a little stool that i pulled up to the sink and i washed the little silo thermos out um, if I didn't, it was really bad the next day because it didn't smell good. <laughs> anyway, and my my sister remembered that and remembered me talking about that. And she found it on eight found one on eBay. Uh, oh, what a nice gift! <laughs> and she gave it to me uh, a couple of uh, a couple of years ago. And it's a very very nice reminder of times that I had with my mom when I was learning to kind of take that step out from under her wing. That's a beautiful and story. Thank you so much for sharing.
And that was Ken Craig. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Stephanie Bazan. I am here with Stephanie, and we are uh, talking about city council elections. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I thought we could just kick it off real quick. I'm sure you've done this a million times by now. Who are you? Why are you running? Um, A little bit also maybe about your your, uh, your personal background, your experience that you're bringing to the table. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Um, I'm beaming from ear to ear just to be a part of this. Um, Thank you so much for the work that you do to help bring clarity and communication to Austinites around what's happening. Um, in their town. I am a mom. I'm a Tejana. I'm a native Austinite who grew up in South Austin in the area that I am running to represent. I'm also part of the Lamone family in Austin. And so if you've heard of our family, service is definitely part of our roots. I am a proven community leader. I have worked in education and healthcare, and law and homeless services, um, all tying back to communications. And so I feel like the depth and breadth of my experience is going to prove um, to help a lot in, in coming into this, this office. I'm a graduate of St. Edwards University, so I'm a hilltopper, and I'm also a proud Longhorn. I went to the LBJ Women's Campaign School at the University of Texas, and I have my master's degree from Leeds University abroad. And so being away from Austin helped me realize um, even more why I loved my hometown and why I wanted to continue to fight for it. I love this city. I love Austin, Texas. It's a great place to live, work, and play, but that's not the story for everybody, and that's why I'm running. I'm running because affordability is a top concern for Austinites, and it's really important for me that my neighbors are able to stay here and thrive, not just work to survive. We're seeing that our small businesses are are struggling, our homeowners are hurting, our renters are being crushed, and seniors who just simply want to stay in town are having a hard time doing that. I'm also running because I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I think that representation matters. I want them to be able to see themselves in the future of Austin. So, yeah, are- let's 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 dive a little into some of those topics you touched on. Um, yeah. One that stood out for me when I was looking through your website and reading more about you is um, small business. So you have spent a lot of years working with the Hispanic Chamber here in town and really seem to emphasize trying to figure out what can we do to help support our small business community here in Austin. And so, you know, if you're elected, what kind of things do you feel like the city could be doing differently that we're not already doing in order to support that that thriving small business community? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a lot of small business owners in my family and, you know, we have a business in D5, Crema, that just had to shut down this last week because of affordability issues. So certainly I think one of the first things we can do is make sure that those small business owners have a seat at the table, whether we're looking at boards or commissions, or if we're doing focus groups around certain things. Um, I feel like sometimes people come in with policies and ideas and they're ready to move things forward without talking to the folks who are really involved in those areas. And so I really feel like that's the start is bringing the people who live it every day um, to the table when we're making decisions that affect them. Yeah. And so, you know, it it kind of, I feel like the small business um, issues are really tied to our affordability issues in general as well. Um, You know, I saw on your website that 
you wrote, I don't want to get rid of what people love about their neighborhoods. I want to purposely enhance our neighborhoods, ensure we are welcoming and make sure that people who live here can afford to stay. Um, you know, this has been a huge issue in Austin for years and years is trying to figure out how to balance like bringing in new housing and also not destroying neighborhoods. Um, but we've really stalled here, you know, like what, what can we actually actually do you know i feel like i hear a lot of candidates talk about these things but what can we what can we do to move forward in some direction yeah that is a great question i think for homeowners especially one of the things we can do is help streamline the permitting process um it takes entirely too long for them to be able to push things through. And so with every day, the cost increases. Um, and it's also very frustrating and sometimes projects go undone. Um, and so that's one of the things we can do there. As far as new builds, we need a diversity of housing across the city um, so that more people can afford to rent or buy. I have a neighbor who lives across the street. They're great neighbors. They've been there for five years and they've been looking to, to get a home and they can, not find a place in Austin that they can afford to purchase. And this is where they wanna be. Um, sure, we've got other great cities nearby, but they don't wanna be in those cities. They wanna be in Austin, Texas. And so we need to look at our code and see what ways we're able to help build more quickly. Um, we are well behind and we need to we need to adjust. And the quickest way to do that is to look at uh, possibilities for urban infill. Um, obviously, lots of us are talking about building on the transit corridors, uh, but there's other spots in town where, you know, people want to live, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't continue to be exclusionary. Austin's urban planning was deliberately founded in exclusionary zoning, and we need rules that people can understand, and we need to be able to build with certainty and build a city that we want for our future, and not just do these ticky tacky you know, things here and there right now, single family building is the only thing that we can do. And that's super expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of ties to, to Project Connect. In a lot of ways, you talked about the transit corridors. That seems to be like one area where there's a pretty good agreement across city council currently about uh, trying to build along transit. And, and you, I saw on your website, you talk a lot about trying to have equitable transit development. And this is, I think, a big back and forth too, is we're we're working on Project Connect. We're going to have these new transit lines. How do we make sure that um, families can still afford to live in the area when the property values rise? Now, as a city, we have put aside $300 million to help with that. But I think it's going to take more than just that $300 million. Probably some policy is going to have to go in place to support that. What, what do you see um, as the real need there as we're developing Project Connect and housing and, and figure out how to do that in a way that's equitable? Yeah, we definitely need to look at the the people who are already living nearby because when we when we um, make things better, often we push people out, um, and so we need to make sure that we're putting some effort towards uh, making sure that folks who are already there can stay there. When we build along these transit hubs, as you said, we also need to make sure that people can get to that transportation. So, you know that that mile to and from a home to the you know metro line or a bus is a really critical mile um, because if it is too difficult, whether there's not good shaded sidewalks or there aren't micro mobility options, once people you know get off a train or a or a bus, um, then we're not making it inclusive and it's actually not usable. And so we're putting so much money into that 
into Project Connect, we need to make sure that it's essentially connected to the other areas, you know, once they get off of that trans transit, so. Yeah, and, and when we're talking about, you know, thinking about housing, these kind of things too, homelessness obviously is a big concern here in Austin. Um, I'm pretty sure, did you used to work at LifeWorks? So you have some experience, yeah, in that area too, you know, um, I saw on your website also you're talking about housing first policies. This is an area I would say in interviewing the other candidates in District 5, there's some disagreement on. Not everyone um, seems supportive of the idea of housing first. Can you talk about what housing first means and kind of why you support that approach? Absolutely. I think the best illustration that I've heard about housing first is if somebody is drowning, you don't take a boat out there and ask them to fill out a bunch of paperwork while they're trying to, to survive and get out of the water. You pull them into the boat, bring them to shore, get them what they need, and then they can work on the paperwork. Um, and so that's what I what I think of when I think of housing first, we need to increase the pace of units for our unhoused neighbors, um, get them somewhere where they feel secure, and then we can work on the wraparound services uh, for other things that we need. And so we really need to encourage those things for our most vulnerable population. They're in a trauma situation. Um, and I don't think that anybody can function in a situation where you're feeling unstable, you're not sure where you're gonna lay your head head at night. Um, so that's why Housing First is so important to me. I also think that we need to look at people who are on the brink of being unhoused because we certainly don't want people who are, you know, working really hard um, to, to have some sort of situation where they're suddenly from the home onto the streets. And then I think the other thing that sometimes people forget is that people experiencing homelessness look different. It's not the stereotype that we necessarily have in our minds. Um, it could be a mom who has a, a, a child and they're living in a car and they need a place to be. Yeah. Um, and before we close, I want to um, have a chance to show yourself, you know, let us introduce you and learn a little bit more about you. Um, I asked some of the candidates to do a little show and tell. So what's our what's your item that you brought for us today? Yeah. So the item I brought, I know everybody can't see it, but it's my teddy. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at what looks like a pretty well-loved teddy bear, I would say. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty, I mean, the fur is pretty flat. Um, <laughs> my first, this was my first show and tell ever when I was in kindergarten at St. Elmo. So I grew up in South Austin, like I said, I went to St. Elmo Elementary and I brought Teddy with me so much that he was sort of, you know, I was asked to bring a different show and tell because people got bored of my you know, talking about Teddy, but Teddy does represent a lot. Teddy represents, um, you know, my mom teaching me how to read before I was in kindergarten, which I believe gave me a leg up um, when I'm looking at other people who didn't come out of poverty and didn't come out of, you know, the situations that I was in. Um, Teddy also represents my dad, who's a super hard worker and taught me, you know, to keep going. And then um, I'm getting emotional, but Teddy represents the little girl who didn't think that she could ever run for city council. So. Well, thank you so much. That's that's a wonderful show and tell. And I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us a little bit about yourself and your campaign today. Thank you so much. I just want to leave by saying that I really feel like my community um, roots and the relationships that I built are what are different about me and what's going to help me champion policy and put it across the finish line. Um, and the fight that I have in my belly for those two little kids that I talked about earlier is the same fight 
that I'm taking to City Hall for, for my community, for the city of Austin. So thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I appreciate this. And that was Stephanie Bazan. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Aaron Velasquez Webman. Okay, I am here with Aaron. Uh, let's just get into it. Why, who are you? Why are you running? Well, my name is Aaron. And uh, the reason I'm running is because, well, my wife and I moved here um, not too long ago in 2019 before COVID because we wanted to start having kids. We were living in Los Angeles. My wife is Dutch, grew up in the Netherlands, but we met in Toronto, moved to LA. And uh, we we realized that we really couldn't raise kids in the neighborhood that we were in. And we saw generally Los Angeles continuously getting worse. There were uh, tents everywhere. Um, you couldn't really step outside without walking over needles and feces. Uh, it, it just became untenable to in, in a place that you couldn't raise a family in. Um, we get here and we love it. We have two kids now. We, we both, both kids were born here in Austin and we never want to leave. Uh, it was alarming to me to start researching because we started to notice that things started to get a little bit worse. Um, uh, there was, you know, there was the camping downtown that was, if, that everyone saw, but then even, even after the camping ban was implemented, there was a lot of, uh, it, it, the problem didn't go away. It was just kind of hidden and moved, moved around the city in a sort of, in a sort of weird sort of way. And we just, we realized that when we looked into it, that a lot of the policies that they were implementing here on the city level and are continuing to implement are actually very parallel to the policies that broke uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and really ruined amazingly beautiful and awesome cities in a matter of years. And the sense of urgency that we have is that if we don't change course, that uh, Austin could be another another kind of casualty on the list of of policies that sound good on their face, but end up leading to second, third, fourth order consequences that that destroyed the lives of the people living in those cities in ways that is are just irreparable. It it's intractable. I don't think Austin's yet at that point. I think that I'm very optimistic that we can get to a place where we implement proper policy to avoid that, um, and that's why I'm running. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I don't love politics. Uh, this process is is triply made me feel like I don't like politics. I love philosophy. I love I love policy. Um, but the political part of this that makes me feel icky is that uh, you're kind of incentivized to win uh, and to act and to act in ways and to take action to try to win elections rather than to try to find ways to actually mitigate real real life problems. And I think that if you're in this political game for too long, your incentives necessarily become perverse. And you stop caring about the things that you got into politics about like every no one's everyone's really susceptible to this and i think that i think that i'm one of those i i think that even even if i wanted to stay in this game for a long time i would become susceptible to this because in order to stay in the game you have to keep on winning you have to keep on appeasing special interest groups certain kinds of packs um other sort of senior politicians other kind of bureaucracy bureaucracies and you lose sight of actually trying to fix issues so my goal is to run once um and 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 get into office and serve for one term and then uh, find maybe other regular people that aren't interested in this political game to to replace me in the future to try to really stay sane and and, and away from all the all the sort of bad political um uh, incentives that I, that I already feel myself having to having to go through 
Yeah, let's talk about some of the specific issues you're talking about there. Homelessness is a big one you raised. Um, I saw on your website that um, you're pretty opposed to this housing first model, which is something that the city of Austin has adopted. And the idea there is, um, I think the theory behind it is meant to be that um, previously it would be a um, a rule usually to get into certain kinds of housing that you would have to do X, Y, Z, right? Like be in some treatment plan program, be sober already, what have you. The idea is let's give people housing first and then provide services at that location to help people get back on their feet. Um, do you want to talk about your feelings towards that policy? Because I know you are, you do not support it. Yeah. I mean, like when housing first was first implemented in San Francisco in 2012, in other cities, but San Francisco is a really great case study. Uh, I think it would have been reasonable not to not to be so frustrated by the people implementing that policy. Yes, arguments at the time were made that ended up being proven right that you know building houses for homeless people and and putting them in it isn't going to fix the, the the root cause of their issues, and they're not going to stay in those homes, and they're not staying in those homes, and they're not able to live comfortably. So not only is it uh, a reckless expenditure that raises you know, the cost of living for all Austinites because and, and and not able to allocate that money in 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 more efficient and better ways elsewhere. But it doesn't actually fix the problem for homeless people. And a lot of times it makes it worse. Uh and so San Francisco's built more housing than anyone else, spent more money than anyone else. And uh since 2012, their their homeless population has only expanded. And I think that a lot of people don't really realize that uh that the, the majority, the vast majority of the homeless population have substance abuse and or mental illness issues and this doesn't mean we shouldn't treat them with humanity and not want to not to, want to figure out ways to help them but i think it's the how we figure out ways to help them that uh that is now under major scrutiny when you start to adopt the, the policies of, of housing first or and i know in austin there's other they call it by other names and other euphemisms and so they're using the same technique, which is, hey, let's spend like $500 million. Let's build a bunch of houses. Let's put the homeless people in it and poof, problem solved because homelessness is just people without homes. But unfortunately, anyone who really studies this issue understands that homelessness doesn't just mean people who have this kind of down and out month. Maybe like they lost their jobs. Maybe they're out. Maybe they're out out of luck. And by the way, those people do exist. And it's it's a lot easier to help those people when the signal is cleared and you're not just throwing money at everything and acting like everyone is in that camp. Because you have to face the harsh truth, which is a lot of these people have substance abuse, substance abuse issues and mental illness issues. And when you can identify the problem for what it is and then solve for that problem, you can do a lot better job both helping them and the smaller percentage of people who are experiencing homelessness who, uh, who actually can be helped and reintegrated into society, society more efficiently. And the faster you can get to those people to help them, the, the less likely it is that they will become chronically homeless. Before we close, I want to talk about uh, land use really quick. Um, I couldn't, where, I guess, where, where, what would your approach be to this? This has been an issue we've been concerned about as a city for a while. Um, how much more we should be building, where we should be building, if we should rewrite our land development code and the effect that could have on affordability. Where do you kind of come down on that? Yeah. So I, the, the, the land, the land code is, is archaic and mm -hmm. I think everyone, there's not one person that's running for city council that, that, that celebrates the current, the current land code and thinks it shouldn't be reformed. The, the big question is uh, whether or not, so one of my opponents always kinds of brags about having, being the only candidate that has a zoning plan 
for the city. Uh, the plan is a one size fits all plan that would be a bureaucratic technocratic push kind of top down, push down to all through to down to all the neighborhood uh, associations throats and kind of forcing them to comply with like sort of this universal regulation. And that sort of one sized fits all approach. Uh, it sounds great in theory, but when you have that sort of in practice, two things will happen. One, you can't actually get to the, to the finish line because neighborhood groups in Austin uh, have rights and they can fight back against these kinds of things quite effectively. Uh, and secondly, even if you, you, you could push them down everyone's throats and force everyone to comply to new regulations and in, in land, in land use, uh, reform, uh, you, 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 all this, all the neighborhoods in Austin, even in my, in our district, which runs north, north, south, it's not very cohesive. If you went, you know, West East, it could be a little more cohesive, but North, South, it's just so diverse in so many different neighborhoods that have so many different needs. And, and it's, and it's, and it's so it's it's just so ridiculous to think that a one size fits all approach for land code could fit this entire city that has so many distinct needs. OK, and then before we close a little bit more about you, uh, <laughs> we're doing kind of our our little show and tell at the end. We were talking before uh, you're a musician. Yeah, so uh, I'm a singer songwriter. Uh, it's it's not something that I really brought up on this campaign. Um, I, I sing folk folk music and sort of like country ish uh, acoustic pop. Um, and, uh, I, I, I'd love to start playing again in Austin and my kids are really young, so it's, it's, they take up a lot of my time, yeah. but <laughs> my, my, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm also by profession, I've, I've been a filmmaker in my life and I'm really excited to get back to the arts, um, when my kids are a little bit older and hopefully do it with them if they have an interest in it. Um, my kid like is already really into dancing and, uh, singing with me. So, um, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping that that continues and uh, he's only, he's only, you know, he's barely, he's turning two next month. So I'm hoping that continues and that right. we can, that can be like a really big part of our lives together. If, if not, if, he, if he's into the stuff, I don't like, I'll get nerdy about the stuff he doesn't like <laughs> too, because I, I just, yeah, being a, being a parent's the best thing in the world, which is why I only want to run for one, one term. I think that I don't want to bring this, the toxicity of politics into my personal life uh, or my family life more specifically. And my kids are just young enough to not remember that I'm, <laughs> So this is, this is this is just like my chance at maybe serving the community and trying to trying to help with, with bring and try to kill some of these bad ideas that sound so good in theory and just don't and don't end up working in the long run. And that was Aaron Velasquez Webman. And our last candidate and final interview for the day is Brian Anderson the second. Okay, let's listen in on that one now. I am here with Brian. We're talking city council. Let's dive right into it. Who are you? Why are you running for office? Yeah, my name is Brian Anderson. I am running for District 5. Uh, one of the reasons I got into the race was the overturning of Roe v. Roe v. Wade. Um, the monkeypox outbreak, it really showed how much we're not ready for the next pandemic, um, just two years after COVID. Um, as an out gay person, um, you know, I went and got the vaccine and that was um, not up to par. Um, and so I want to get more involved to make sure that we're prepared. And um, I'd also say the Texas winter storm, the like horrendous um, response there from the state government. And honestly, also, you know, also Austin City Council. Um, well, we can get into it, but I, I am happy with some of the things that Austin City Council is doing, including the climate resilience hubs that they've been doing, they've been getting up going. Okay, great. So let's talk about some of those issues. Yeah. It seems like healthcare is sort of one that you touched on um, there. What do you feel like 
the city of Austin in particular could be doing uh, to provide more, but better, I guess, healthcare services and respond to some of these ongoing emergencies. Yeah. So the biggest problem I had with the monkeypox outbreak was the lack of communication from any kind of source, whether it be local, state, or federal. And um, that I will isolate separately from the federal response because the federal government was the one that owns the vaccines. And so we don't have a lot of power or autonomy in that. But at the same time, there was not hardly any outreach. There was not hardly any communication. All of us in the gay community had to just bother all of our local physicians and um, different clinics, whether it's the Kind Clinic or whether you go to a private provider. We had to just find out on our own, hey, do you have the vaccine? When can I get it? Uh, what's the answer? And they're like, we don't know. Like, but you know, and then they had to come up on the fly with their own kind of like sign up and we'll alert you. And then like, uh oh, we only had a thousand shots and they're all gone in 24 hours. Tough luck. So, um, yeah, I think one of the things I would like to see more from the city of Austin is to really take ownership on public health crises, whatever level that they're at, and make sure that whatever holes are happening in the federal or state response that Austin's ready to step in and, and lead to make sure gotcha. that citizens are, are taken care of and that they have answers. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about uh, emergency, the winter storm, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. kind of tied to some of our city's climate work. What would you like to see our city doing when it comes to emergency weather response and like climate preparedness in general? Yeah, this is actually um, a key part of my platform, um, climate resilience and climate prevent or climate change, uh, com- you know, combating it and getting to net zero. Um, I'm going to be calling for us to bring our 2040 net zero goal forward to, to, to five years sooner, to 2035. The idea is that, you know, when you shoot an arrow in archery, you aim actually a little bit above the bullseye so you can land on it. So Mm -hmm. I think if we really push for 2035, we can hedge ourselves a bit more to get to 2040 and really do our part and lead in that way. Um, As far as preparations for climate resilience, I want us to make sure we're getting as much money as possible from the infrastructure bill that passed through Congress and the Inflation Reduction Act, both of which we can use to make sure that we're ready um, for whatever crises happen next. I know right now we're going through a huge drought. So we need to make sure that like we have the water reserves ready. But as we've seen in places like Pakistan and with hurricanes that go through Florida um, and Houston, um, we are going to be very prone to a flood just as much. And in fact, you're more likely to have a flood after a drought because the ground is actually so dry the water just like goes right over it instead of right. absorbing into the ground. So um, we just need one hurricane to come through after a drought and it flood our city. And so we need to make sure that all of our infrastructure can hold maybe two times what it was designed for. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I don't see anybody looking into, that I don't see any assurances on that we are ready. For, for any of the next catastrophes. Because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when and what. Yeah. Whether it's a drought, whether it's the flooding, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's tornadoes, 
whether it's wildfires. I know like my, my grandfather owned some property in Bastrop before he died when I was in fifth grade. And, um, you know, they've had wildfires multiple times mm-hmm. in the last couple of decades. So it's not unlikely for that to just hop on over into Travis County at some point. Right. And speaking of infrastructure, uh, Project Connect, a big infrastructure project that our city is going to be working on over the next, you know, 10 years. I think I saw on your website that you're a public transit user. Yes. Um, what would you, if you were elected, you know, how would you help to steward Project Connect? What do you want to see coming out of it? What kind of impact do you feel like you could have on the implementation of that? Most people who run for city council in Austin, some some even brag, like I've lived here my whole life, born and raised, and that's great. And I love that. And I'm from Fort Worth. I'm a born and raised Texan. I think it's an asset that I moved away. I studied abroad in South Korea. I taught English in China. I lived in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. I've traveled to multiple continents and used mass transit everywhere. And I've lived without a car for over a decade um, using mass transit. And so having been in all these global cities, I know what good transit looks like. And it's not just about putting in a a rail line. What makes it effective is what happens in the next tenth of a mile from that station that you get on for a train. And so a lot of our designers for urban planning in southern states, they also have not lived anywhere Mm -hmm. with mass (laughs) transit. And so a lot of the orientation or the way that people start is by being car oriented. And what I really want to make sure happens is that all of these Project Connect lines, all the stations, everything, I'd say a half mile around it is designed for the pedestrian first. Hmm. Got it. So that's what I bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Another big issue facing our city, homelessness an area where as a community, we've had a lot of back and forth, a lot of discussion on um, how do you feel like city council has responded to our city's homelessness crisis so far? And and what would you like to see see done in the next four years? Um, You know, I just wrote, a voter wrote me over email after visiting my website and really asked about this and said like, what are you gonna do about it? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I told her, you know, the first thing we have to do, if you're in a medical emergency room, and you're bleeding out, the very first thing you do is stop the bleeding. Mm. And the biggest driver to homelessness, and there's tons of research out there, anyone can just Google it, it's affordable housing. It just starts to creep up into the lower bracket, whether it's the bottom 10% or bottom quartile, people start to be able to not afford where they live. And if they don't have the means or resources or connections to help them get into some stable housing, they end up on the street. I mean, <laughs> Lizzo lived out of her car for, I don't know if many people know this, but the famous singer Lizzo was homeless for a while. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be um, experiencing houselessness. And we have to really look at, are we taking care of people before it happens? And so affordable housing is critical to addressing that in the medium and long term. Now I'll say in the short term, it's a lot harder. Right. We can, we can get we can get an agreement on a lot of things with 
um, you know, redoing our land use development code and density along rail lines for Project Connect. There's a lot of long-term things that we can do, but dealing with the um, population that's experiencing houselessness right now, as someone who had a drug addicted uncle who was on heroin and meth and like everything you can imagine um, and was in and out of jail, I know that it's a chronic issue that you can't just solve with any one program. Hmm. So the key to taking care of that is making sure that we build up uh, our, our services, our social services within the city through public and private partnerships, through the city itself, that we're making sure that we're providing comprehensive care and a means to recovery for a lot of these people, whether it be from addiction or just temporary housing while they look for a new job. Because another big driver of, of people experiencing homelessness is a recession right. because they're fine paycheck to paycheck, but the moment they lose their job, it's over. Right. Um, before we close, I want to make sure we get to chat and learn a little bit more about you as a person real quick. We're doing our show and tell activity. What item did you bring for us today? Okay. <laughs> um, I br brought this like five pound book. Let me see if I can like bring it. Okay. I'm seeing it's, it's a uh, small, medium, large XL. Yes. So, um, I can maybe just turn off my, uh, yeah, your blur. <laughs> yeah. My blur so you can actually see it. Um, it's called small, medium, large, extra large. It's from Ram Coolhouse, who's a star architect in the OMA architecture firm. This book with the yellow lettering is one of 30,000 original copies that exists ever. And it was made in the 80s. And uh, <laughs> I was in Provincetown, Massachusetts on a summer vacation with some friends. And there's this little used bookstore that was along a stone road or like stone path. And I walked in and I was looking, just browsing, just being bored on vacation, which is wonderful. And uh, I saw this giant, you know, like five pound book and the big letters of SML right. XL. <laughs> and I actually screamed because I had been looking for this book since college and any architecture or design nerd knows this book immediately. And I've <laughs> heard of people finding it, like maybe at a used bookstore in Manhattan. Uh-huh. But otherwise, I've never heard of anybody finding it. And that's our show for today. If you want to learn more about all of the candidates running, be sure to follow our Instagram page because we'll be publishing an election guide just for District 5. Also, if you click on the show notes for this episode, you can find links to all of the candidates' websites. Oh, and keep an eye out on our podcast feed because we'll be publishing episodes on all of the city council elections in the coming weeks. And don't forget to vote.